The following audio is from Central Christian Church, located in Portales, New Mexico. To connect with Central, go to centralwired.org.
want to talk to you this morning about a myth that exists, particularly in Western Christianity. And that is the myth, really the lie of Satan, that you can be saved without being a disciple. So let me explain. We've probably all been present when the preacher has asked everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes. And then if anyone would like to receive Jesus as their Savior, just raise your hand. Now with all heads bowed and eyes closed. I see you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Yes, I see you. Is there anybody else? Well, I just invite you to pray this prayer after me in your heart. It's called the sinner's prayer, which, by the way, is nowhere in Scripture. And then at the end of that, he announces, now you're saved. You're going to heaven. You're great. It's just that simple. Except that that is not the way we see it in Scripture at all. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor during World War II who opposed the Third Reich. And he was executed just shortly before the end of the war in one of the German prison camps. And he describes this kind of grace in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And he says it this way, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Richard Feynman, who is a famous physicist, once said, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself because you're the easiest one to fool. You see, we believe what we want to believe. And thinking that all we have to do is raise our hand and pray a prayer is a very comfortable kind of belief system, but it isn't Christianity. And there are literally millions of people who have fallen for that lie. They've said a prayer. Maybe they've even been baptized, and sometimes they might even come to church. But they aren't disciples. So how does Scripture define discipleship? Well, Jesus said, if any of you want to be my disciples, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. And when he told the rich young ruler, as we've dubbed it, to go and sell all that he had and then come and follow him. And when he said that anyone who did not hate father and mother and brother and sisters and husband or wife and children could not be his disciple, he was referring back to the very first commandment in Exodus that says to not have any little g gods that come before me. You see, to be his disciple, God has to be your first priority. We can't just believe and be saved. James tells us that faith without works is dead. In other words, there ought to be fruit in our lives. Navigator's ministry defines discipleship this way. Discipleship is a journey of intentional decisions leading to maturity in your relationship with Jesus so that you become more like him in your attitudes, focus, and ultimately behavior. It requires a commitment from the potential disciple and the disciple makers. It's not something that happens by accident or overnight, and it can't be completed in a six-weeks course. This is a lifelong commitment to follow God with your whole self and to both learn from and eventually teach others about how to follow him. So, as we partake of this memorial meal, Jesus tells us to do this in remembrance of him. In the Jewish mind, to do something in remembrance is not just to file back through your memories and say, oh yeah, I know about that. Instead, it's to bring something from the past into the present and project it into the future. So this morning, I want to ask you to do a mental exercise. Put yourself at that table with him and the disciples. 
and feel the emotion and the fear and the confusion that they felt. Or stand at the foot of the cross and picture yourself as John or one of the women and feel that grief and again that confusion and that lostness and then experience the love that was expressed in the statement, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Or perhaps go back to the hillside when he gave what we call the Sermon on the Mount and picture yourself as one of the poor, helpless outcasts of society and hear him tell you that the kingdom of heaven is yours because you're willing to listen, unlike the Jewish leaders who thought they had it all figured out. In other words, take this fellowship meal with Jesus, the very most important person in your life, and vow that from this point forward, you will renew your commitment to be a disciple and not just a believer. Because you see, even the demons believe. Let's pray. Father, we come confessing that too often this world and our relationships and our possessions and our worldly obligations are more important to us than our first and most important commitment to you. We humbly ask for your forgiveness and we thank you that though our sins are many, your grace is greater. Thank you that you have promised to never leave us or forsake us. And that means that you will empower us to truly live as your disciples. Thank us for leaving these emblems to share in fellowship with you, our Savior and our Lord. May we truly be renewed this morning in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. In the 1600s, there was a form of military punishment called running the gauntlet. What they would do is they'd line up all of the army on both sides. If you've done something heinous and and they needed to punish you, they would give them sticks and ropes that had knots in them, and you ran through it, and they hit you and beat you and stuck you. Later on in football, they uh, taught the the ball carriers, running backs, quarterback, receiver, to not fumble the ball. So they would line all the team up on both sides, and you hold the ball and you run through, and they're punching at it and reaching, trying to pull it out and trying to get you to drop it because carrying the ball was your job, and and things are going to get in the way, and we need you to hang on to the ball. If anothering matters then we need to talk about some tough stuff. Our job is to carry the message of Christ. And there are going to be things that come at us and hit us and beat us and knock us back that are going to, that are going to make us lose the ball if we're not careful. So we're starting a new series today called Running the Gauntlet. It's a, a new one, but it's a hard one. It's something I don't typically do a topical study. We're going to look at a lot of different things. We're going to look at, for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about mental health. Now, in that incredible open, you saw that was our own, our, it was our own, our own group. It was our, Cody and Caden and uh, Jancy and Riley all running. And as they passed the baton to each other, they were trying to break through some of the things like disappointment and Guilt, bitterness, and worry, procrastination, discouragement, and the one we're going to talk about today, anxiety. It's a very hard subject that hits here in Portalis, very difficult. And it applies to us because this idea of anothering that we're taking for this year is we're going to hang on to one another. We're going to help one another up. The Kaiser Foundation released a study just about a week and a half ago, February 6th, 2024. That's how fresh this data is. And they said 22.1% of U.S. teens have anxiety and or depression. But of those that have that, less than 80% are getting any kind of treatment. And that's a struggle. Now, 
Sometimes it's because they're afraid of what they might, somebody might think of them, or sometimes it's the cost or what it might look like. But they're battling mental health issues, and it's, it's difficult. They go on to say 21%. Actually, the Institute for Mental Health says 21% of all Americans, that's 50 million people, deal with a mental health, mental health issue on a daily basis. That means either you or someone in your house is dealing with something in a very heavy way. And in Portalis right now, if there is a significant mental health episode, and what that means is, Somebody uh, attempting suicide, somebody that is so despondent, they're having a psychotic episode, there's police involved, there's there's, uh, emergency room involved, that they have to put them in a psychiatric hold, that frequently, not every time, but frequently, they will take them to Las Cruces or Fort Worth, a long way away. And that's a difficult thing for parents, and, and, and it's just hard. Friends, mental health is a concern for our area, and we need to talk about it. So this is going to be hard, and I'm asking you to stick with me as we talk about some difficult stuff. But I think it's interesting that as a preacher, right before I start talking about stuff, I'm going to tell you what it's not. What this series is not, it's not uh, that... Franklin and I, that we're counselors and we're diagnosing you. That's not true. We are not mental health counselors. We're not licensed professionals. We have many around here. We have some wonderful ones around here, and they care. I'm not diagnosing you. I'm not here to gripe about who's taking meds or who's in counseling or therapy. In fact, exactly the opposite. I want you, if you are struggling with some of these issues, to seek help. If some of these topics that come up, really sting you, I want you to talk to somebody. Come talk to us, and we'll help you get with somebody that can then walk you through some of these struggles. I also want you to know this is not going to be a series of TED Talks, okay? I, I don't want to get up here and spout my opinion about all these things. I want us to look at the Scripture, okay? I want us to get into Scripture. My hope is this will empower us to stand taller and walk stronger, amen, as Christian brothers and sisters. Now, you might be sitting there saying, I don't need this, Don. I'm fine. I'm healthy. If you don't need this, that's great. But my hope is that if, if this doesn't apply to you, then that will grow your compassion for the people around you. That will open our eyes to the struggle that is going on right here in our community. And maybe we won't judge people or their problems or how they're living so quickly. Maybe we'll reach out and we'll help a single mom or a struggling teenager. I love this quote that I got this last week. The real evidence of spiritual maturity isn't found in the absence of mental health struggles, but instead how we respond to them. It's going to be hard. And we need to be the leaders that take this step of faith to to talk about some things. So let's talk about anxiety. And it's funny, not ha-ha funny, ironic funny, all of the articles that deal, no, a giant majority of the articles that deal with Christians and anxiety, and there are hundreds, if not thousands of them. I googled books, I googled uh, podcasts as I was preparing for this series. This is heavy on my heart, and I want to share these things with you. And I want us to grow together. I don't have all of this figured out. You don't. We, we need to work on this together. But I was stunned at how many of the articles out there that talk about, if you Google Christian and anxiety, frequently they will say, here's the answer. Don't have it. Okay. And? <laughs> just don't. You just don't need to have it. That's bad. Okay, I get it. But what if you do? And frequently they will quote this verse, and I love this verse, and I think biblical teaching is absolutely true. Be anxious for nothing. The problem is, it's not always that easy, is it? Because anxiety and depression are on a, a large spectrum of feelings. Some of you are trying to figure out, am I having a bad day? 
just, you know, things aren't working great? Or am I having a situational discouragement? I'm dealing with something in my life at work or at home or a grief or a, a tragedy. Or, or do I have clinical depression? See, you're on all of those parts of those spectrums, and it's, it's hard to understand these things. I'm not here to tell you don't have anxiety. I'm here to talk about how can we deal with this together. Does that sound like a fair map of where we're headed? So our text today comes from a really weird place. I had a great epiphany, an understanding at a funeral. This has been heavy on my heart for weeks now, and I was at a funeral. And I frequently will quote this verse, and I'm going to ask you in a few minutes to stand and read this with me together. So we're reading these words out loud, and they're going into our brain and our heart. But I frequently talk about this verse in a funeral, and I say that where he's telling this is at Capernaum. Capernaum is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and it's kind of the base for Jesus' ministry. He spent a lot of his time teaching there. And why this is important is it was a poor town. It was a poor area. It was an area that was filled with people that had dealt with pain and struggle. And it is in this place that he gives one of his most powerful quotes ever. So I'm going to invite you, if you're able, would you stand with me? And let's read this together. This is Matthew 11:28 through 30. If you're keeping notes, it's on the back of your uh, Sunday sheet. And I want to read this, read this together from the New Living Translation. Are you ready? Here we go. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thank you. Have a seat. You see, in context, Jesus is talking to people that have dealt with poverty, of pain, with panic. Is that not the roots of anxiety? Is that not people that, doesn't it sound like those are people that are dealing with anxiety? And his very, very first statement is, in, he says, you need to move toward me. You need to move in the direction of me. Come to me. Now, our culture says, fix yourself. Make yourself happy. Do more things that make you happy. And ease yourself in self-care. And I'm a big fan of self-care. But do more things that make you happy. And Jesus says, no. He says, get up and move in the direction of Jesus. Move away from your anxiety and move toward me. Do more things that make you holy, not happy. Now that might mean spend more time in Bible study. That might mean worship. That might mean prayer. That might mean call a friend and let's go have coffee. And anytime I say those things, there is this, I I just want you to know I'm not trying to get you to feel guilty. You're not doing enough. You need to work harder. Well, if you prayed harder, your marriage would be fixed. That's not what I'm saying, okay? You hear me? I want us to not sit. I'm afraid sometimes we we sit in our anxiety. We sit in our discouragement. And, and it just takes us over. I think Jesus is saying, take steps in his direction. Breathe and start focusing on what Jesus does. The writer of Lamentations is a, laments. The whole book is talking about his pain. And I love this in Lamentations 3. Now, most of you know 22, but when he starts in verse 20, he says, My soul continually remembers my afflictions. Here it says, my soul remembers them. Them is my afflictions, the things that have happened to me, and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Do you get how he starts this? He's saying, yes, your anxiety is real. Yes, the things that have happened to you. Yes, the traumas that you've dealt with, they are real. But you know what? Hope is realer. It it is. Hope is bigger. It is more real. We need to 
We need to step into that hope. I am not here to tell you, oh, get over your anxiety, get over it. No, that's not what I'm saying. He's saying it's real. Some of you battle that. Some of you battle it from what has happened to you. Some battle it because you're battling through grief or, or a trauma or a brokenness. Name it. God, I'm struggling. This hurts. And move in his direction and lay it at his feet. And then he says, take my yoke upon you. We're city folk. We don't understand what these things are. But some of you are country folk. And you have seen or you've heard about. This is a reference to oxen. And these are big wooden planks that are tied to teams of oxen. Sometimes two, but uh, mostly two. But sometimes it could be multiples, a, a train of them as it were. And they put their heads in there. And when you are yoked to something else, you go where they go. All right? You go everywhere together. But what they frequently did when they were used, these these were training tools. They would put an older oxen, a big guy in there, and put that thing on there. And they would put a younger one and put it in the other side. Maybe the hoop didn't even fill his head and they'd have to tie it up a little bit more. And so the little guy went with the big guy everywhere. Everywhere they went, no matter what, they were going together. But the older one is carrying most of the weight. The older one is the stronger one. The older one is the wiser one. And he is carrying the weight. Do you notice that the yoke really implies work? Doesn't that seem a little counterintuitive? Rest comes from work? Really? And let's be honest. This idea of yoke goes completely against my freedom from, you know, my personal freedom. It's funny to me. It doesn't seem right that freedom comes from tying ourselves in bondage. And therein lies a lot of the root of our anxiety problems. We want things our way. We want things my way. Listen, I am not saying your trauma is not real. I'm saying it can be a yoke. And if you are yoked to the trauma, if you're yoked to the anxiety, if you're yoked to the the grief, it goes where it wants to go and you just go right along with it. Sometimes our anxiety is we're facing so many decisions, so many money, so many things like that. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? We need to be yoked to the wise one. We need to be yoked to somebody that knows how to deal with this and let him carry the weight. He says that yoke is is easy. See, the yoking to trauma or yoking to anxiety, that's heavy. He said, my yoke is easy. Mine's easy. Now, the yoke that draws us to holy living and godly thinking, eh, that can sound like work. And I'll even be honest, it can seem oppressive to spiritually mature. A lot of people will come to God and they'll say, hey, I like you, God. I love this singing business. Hey, that, that hugging, I'm a really big fan of that. But you know, you know, there's a bunch of things in here I don't think I agree with. I, I'm, I, I want, I, that's not how I think. That's fine. You're allowed to think that. But you're not being yoked to Jesus. You're, th- you're yoked to you. Okay? And yoking to Jesus... That's why we say this all the time. We're a Bible, believe in a Bible using church. When this thing clashes with culture, this thing wins. And we are yoked to him, and he says this is right, and he says this is wrong. Well, then, okay, I may not agree with that, but I'm trusting the wiser one. I am yoked to the bigger one. I love this quote from John Newton. John Newton's the guy that wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, could save a wretch like me. He was a slave trader. He was an alcoholic. He was a cheat liar. He was a horrible guy. Came to know the Lord and it really changed him. And he started writing letters after he wrote that song and others. And of course they were in Old English. So this is a paraphrase of it. But I love this quote. One of the marks of Christian maturity is when we acquiesce to the Lord's will because of who he is. Not because, well, all right, you're God, whatever. No, because of who you are. As we move in the direction, our disappointment and our anxiety fade. We trust that 
okay, God, your will, you built this planet and you built these galaxies. I am trusting you. I am going to be yoked to you. He goes on, he says, learn from me. Friends, are we listening to our voices, to our anxiety, or are we listening to him? I read a story, I actually shared it here a few years ago, about a school in Manhattan that was just all of a sudden had some really wonky test scores. Everything was, you know, just, they hadn't changed a lot of teachers, they hadn't changed curriculum, but all of a sudden the test scores went wacko. And they were trying to figure out what it was, and they kept looking. So they brought in an outside counselor. Her name is Arlene Bronzaft. She's a psychologist. And she watched, and she looked at the tests, and she looked at the kids, and she figured out that the low scores were coming from classrooms that were on the side that faced the L train, the elevated train. That was going by outside the school. And the ones that were getting good scores were facing the playground. And it was something, she said, could it be that simple? And they talked to the superintendent. And they talked to New York Transit. They said, let's get this figured out. So they went in and they put noise abatement stuff on that side of the building, really to sound dampen it. And within one year, their score per, their scores had evened out. It was that simple. There was just so much noise They couldn't pay attention to what was going on. Friends, when our lives get loud and noise is filling every frequency and nothing, all I can hear is the anxiety, all I can hear is the pain, all I can hear, we miss hearing God. It's a still, small voice. We lose our our sense of being. We lose our, we lose our sense. Jesus comes along and he, and he makes all of this. He says, come to me, I'll carry your burden. And he says, I will give you rest. Is there a human on planet earth that couldn't use more of this? I haven't ever met anybody. You know what? I'm totally full. I am rested. I got everything. Uh-uh. We're all running 90 to nothing. We're all exhausted. But you see, this rest is more than just a nap. This is an easing of the anxiety. This is a peace that my struggles are not going to consume me. Friends, in the heat of the battle, in the heat of getting through every day, it's very easy to lose hope. It's very easy to see all of the stuff that's out there, to become pessimistic and fatalistic and, oh, the glass is three-quarters empty, convince ourselves of defeat, convince ourselves the worst-case scenario is going to happen. Anybody else a worst-case scenario guy? All right. Like, oh, man, what's the worst? Yeah, and we're, we're playing out all these options that are probably not going to happen. Friends, as Christ followers, we have got to open our eyes to the view from where Jesus sits. Now get this, I get it, we're not in heaven, we can't see it, but we, we are too busy seeing all of the minutia, we need to zoom out. We are part of something bigger than just today. You hearing me? I, I, let me see if I can make it this way. I'm a, I'm a member of this church family, and I'm proud to be a member of this church family. We are growing, we are impacting lives, we are trying our hardest to, to talk and love one another. Uh, anothering is a big deal, amen? And we are a part of the kingdom of Jesus. Uh, scripture tells me the gates of hell can't stop that. Now, is it easy to look out the window and see the world's going haywire? Duh. All right. Yeah, of course it's going haywire. It's crazy out there. Man, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Everything's going terrible. We need to stop. And listen, that Kaiser Foundation said something just kind of in a passing note said that every weekend, 105 million people worldwide are going to church. 105 million people. Well, that sent me down a rabbit hole. Last weekend was the Super Bowl. Just curious how much is NFL attendance, not not watching the game. I'm talking attendance at the stadium. So I looked at it, and last year, their last year's, the NFL had 17.9 million people attend games. That's all of the games everywhere, a whole season and playoffs and everything. Well, I, I kept digging. 
What's the NBA? The NBA's was twenty point three million. All right, what's what's Major League Baseball? Major League Baseball, sixty four point one million people attended Major League Baseball games last year. Now you go, huh? I thought football was the big one. Well, baseball has 162 games, and basketball has 80-some-odd, and, and football has 17. And so all of that together, you add all that up together, that's 102.3 million people have attended the three major sports this past year. But this weekend, 105 million people are going to church. That's a, that's a pretty good thing. It's very easy to get... Um, and, and, you know, it's so bad out there. And people say, I wish people would get as excited about church as they do about the Super Bowl. Friends, pews are still being filled. Lives are still being changed. In a world out of control, our God has never surrendered his authority. I will give you rest, he says. Now, at the same time, I think we need to be conscious of our body and our mind. This is a slide Franklin made for last week. You can't pour from an empty cup. Every time I start thinking about anxiety and struggle, I'm drawn to, it's really one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. It's Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Elijah goes up in 1 Kings 16, mono e 400 mono. He goes up against 400 other prophets. It's an incredible battle, and he wins. He wins. It's not even close. There is no doubt he won. There is no doubt God came through for him. There's not go, no doubt God came through for Israel. And the very next day, not months later, years later, the very next day, this woman named Jezebel says, I don't like that, Elijah. I'm going to kill him. For sundown tonight, I'm going to kill him. And 1 Kings 19, verse 3 says this, Elijah was afraid for his life. The same Elijah that yesterday had gone up against 400 guys, not even winking, all right? You know, just, it was, he was so, how could you, come on, Elijah, how could you do that? Because he started looking at the current situation and not at the bigger picture. And Elijah says, man, he runs out in the mountains. I, I'm going to die. I think I'm just going to lay down. God, there's no money. I'm the only one left. I just, just let me die. So an angel shows up, kicks him in the foot and says, here, eat a muffin. Go to sleep. Take a nap. So he sits there, reads his paper for a little while, wakes him up. Hey, hey, get up. Here, drink some water. Eat some tortillas. Here's some juice. Chill out for a little while. Take another nap. Friends, I get it. Your anxiety is real. Your struggles are real. But your anxiety can be fed by hunger and dehydration and fatigue. So self-care is important. I, I prefer the term soul care. More than just take care of me, I'm, I need to go sit in the presence of God. Because let's be honest, the true nature of anxiety and discouragement is working at the wrong thing. It's living in fear. It's trying to pull the whole weight up the hill by yourself. Anxiety involves feelings of failure. I'm either going to fail or I have failed. I'm going to be a failure. I, I'm scared of what can happen. What happens if? And all those things limit us. Just exactly some of the things that Scott shared in his, his communion meditation. We have an enemy. And the Bible calls him the father of lies. And he lies to us. And he'll get by your ear and he'll whisper, you're a failure, you're terrible, you're worthless, you're not going to get it done. Everything bad is going to happen. He's going to keep whispering those things. We need to speak the name of Jesus. We need to pray the name of Jesus. We need to stand in his love. There's power. There is healing and moving in the direction of Jesus. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. We don't fight for a victory in our life. We fight from his victory. He already won. Linda Derby, who's from Tulsa, Oklahoma, she found out her daughter had breast cancer. 
Her daughter's married to a missionary down in South America. They have two twin small boys. And she's way down there, and she doesn't know what's going on, and she's just terrified. She waits breathlessly for every bit of information. She gets a text or an email that with some good news and she's just elated then she gets another text that's that's a little down and she sinks into a deep depression she felt helpless she's a million miles away she she couldn't help her daughter every parent in here knows that kind of pain if your kid is hurting you'll do anything to stop that you know i'll i'll cut it off myself and fix it i'll do anything and she felt completely out of control and couldn't help and couldn't do anything. And then she started figuring out that this emotional roller coaster she was on was quite literally killing her. Blood pressure was going up. She was, she was getting sick. And so she retreated to her bedroom for a time of serious prayer. She told God she's going to let him be God and stop worrying about things. And that he was in control of everything. And then she said this quote, from the moment I committed it to committed it all to his sovereign power and purpose, my anxiety began to melt away. Now we got thousands of stories like that. What we need to do is we need to take the word Linda out and put your name in there. Maybe it's a medical issue that is stealing your joy. Maybe it's financial problems that are weighing you down. Maybe the grief of losing a loved one is just immobilizing you. Maybe fatigue of raising kids and living life and going through the daily, it's just exhausting your faith. Friends, I do not have this idea that 20 minutes together and we're going to fix all the problems. I'm not asking. I'm asking you to take a step in the direction of Jesus and put on his yoke. Walk in the direction of Jesus and let him carry your weight. I do think it's funny. He still expects you to work. That's the whole point of a yoke. It is a work tool. But he will carry the heavy stuff. Let him carry your anxiety. Let him carry your fear. Let him make it well with your soul. Let him make it so you can sing that song. Running the gauntlet is going to be hard. There is a plethora of things that are hitting at us, trying to knock our eyes off of Jesus. But we're going to another together. We're going to hang on to each other. Amen? And if you're struggling with this, stick around and let us talk. We're going to sing a little bit more of I Speak Jesus. And I pray that you don't just sing this as a song. I pray that you declare it from your, from your toes, that it is coming out of all of your pores. He has power. He has healing. And maybe you have a neighbor that is struggling with some of these things. Maybe this will empower us to go another one another. Whatever you're dealing with. We want to walk with you. Thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in Portales, New Mexico. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To connect with us, visit our website at centralwired.org.